Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. I believe that podcasts are the future. <laughs> Record them well and let us lead the way. It's the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. Andy, what the hell's happening in your world? What's up, buddy? I'm, uh, I'm giving serious consideration to bringing back the leg warmer. Ah, I am nice and toasty over here. It's like the slippers of my calves. Nice, That's nice. Awesome. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I was actually picturing you in one of those sweatshirts with the collar cut out, so we could see a little shoulder over here. But <laughs> a couple of probably some little hairs sprouting out on the top oh, yes. there. Very, very sexy. All right, Don, how you doing, man? I feel the need, the need for. All right, I, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to come up with like a <laughs> shirtless something else. Yeah, you, you could have just gone with speed, and we would have been fine. I know. But <laughs> I wanted to be clever. So this is indeed the Album Nerds podcast. We love albums in the album format, and we'll be talking about some of those today. So today's theme is 1986 top. 10 albums and uh, we've got a great show coming up for you we're gonna go over our listening week a little bit some of the, those top 10 albums that we uh, explored we'll go through our individual album selections we're gonna answer a question loosely related to today's topic and then we're gonna spin the wheel of musical destiny to find out what we'll talk about next time but let's get into 1986 that's what i'm talking about in 1986, the top television shows were The Cosby Show, Family Ties, and Cheers. Love them all. The top films were Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, yes. and The Karate Kid Part 2. But we will be talking about the top 10 albums of 1986. In fact, we'll each choose an album from that list. So, the top 10 albums, according to Billboard, right? Mm -hmm. Of 1986 for the year. So some of these were actually recorded in 85, but uh, they really took off in the following year. We'll go through the list just briefly. Starting with number 10, Miami Sound Machine's Primitive Love. Come on, shake your body, maybe do that. <laughs> I kind of ignored that one. Me too. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, yeah it wasn't not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, Andy, listen to it. Uh, Phil Collins, No Jacket Required. Of course, you know, you got that Sue Studio going on. So I, I considered that one briefly. It's got some fun moments. Yeah, I, I, there's definitely some energetic moments there for Mr. Collins. No listening required. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> So then uh, Sade Promise, I believe this is the follow up. Uh, to Diamond Life. I actually have not heard this album, and I, I didn't get around to it this time either, you guys. Yeah, it's a it's a very sweet, tender record um, in line with what you'd expect. Cool. A bubble bath record for you, Andy? Mm. Yeah. Put it on my bubble bath list. <laughs> it's getting pretty long. <laughs> then we got Mr. Mr. with Welcome to the Real World. Which, you know, Kyrie, Broken Wings, but otherwise, yeah. it's kind of a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> very of the times, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do own that one on, on vinyl because uh, I really loved those singles at the time. Uh, we got Janet Jackson Control. We'll be talking about that one a little bit later. Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms at number five. Again, we're coming back to the old Dire Straits. ZZ Top Afterburner was number four. Yeah. It's got some, some very stereotypical ZZ Top moments yep. on it. But yeah, it's not their best, but... I can't believe it was number four. Uh, well, I think I think a lot of it was just from tr the trajectory of the record before it. Uh, number three, John Mellencamp, Scarecrow. I love that album. Me too. 
And if we hadn't talked about it in the past, like a couple years ago, and if we hadn't just covered a John Mellencamp album recently, I totally would have picked that one. I think it might be mm-hmm. his best. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Heart, heart. Heart. I wasn't really into this era of heart myself. Never. <laughs> it's You can hear elements of like what they were doing in the 70s, but it's like, it's very 80, 80s eyes. Yeah. The voice yeah. is still there. Yeah, the the vocals are incredible on these though, because it's so they really go into the soaring stuff for the '80s style um, from from Ann Wilson there. So there are there certainly are some great vocal moments. I don't think they were writing a lot of their songs at this point. Yeah, I think they were trying for a comeback and for hits and all that jazz. And then at number one, Whitney Houston, self titled, and we'll be uh, circling back around on the old number one, the ultimate diva, Whitney Houston. Why don't we get to listening? You. Choo choo choose me? I think it's wonderful to have a band like Dire Straits in the world. You say to somebody, Do you like Dire Straits? And if they say, Yeah, I think they're really great, then you know that they're a stupid git and they want their head shot. Ah, the British. <laughs> The least British British band I've ever heard is Dire Straits. Yeah, no, I had to double check if they were where they were from. I always assumed they were from the States. Anyway, for my 1986 selection, we are indeed talking about Dire Straits and their album Brothers in Arms. It's the fifth studio album for the five-piece from London, England. It spent 14 weeks at number one in the UK, nine weeks in the US, and is, being, and is credited as being the first album to sell a million copies on the CD. Um, we are going to play a little bit from the second single off the album. This is Money for Nothing. <laughs> Took me a second to realize that wasn't the original. <laughs> That's all I hear when I hear the real song. Get all of hell. Do it out, yeah. Song is ruined by Weird Al. That's funny. I don't even associate the two together, but who I do think of listening to that track a lot is ZZ Top, man. I feel like they just ripped yeah. off their sound almost completely on that song. It, they, I think they try to tap into all the rootsy American rock stuff because it's got a Springsteen-y vibe mm-hmm. a lot too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. They were borrowing. Yeah, so a very interesting song there. It's kind of written from the perspective of an appliance store clerk. Became a little bit controversial as of late. Uh, uses the word faggot many times throughout the refrain. Actually, featured Sting on backing vocals is an interesting little tidbit. Yeah, just one thing to note about the uh, lyrics of that song was that apparently that was from a conversation Mark Knopfler overheard, like at an uh, appliance store or something. MTV was on, and it was regarding the artists and their maybe their femininity. These guys were mocking them mm-hmm. and uh, essentially just saying that they took a shortcut they had it easy right uh, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't uh excuse the language necessarily but just the context i think is important exactly right? so uh the three words i used to describe this album are neon roots rock 
Yeah, I mean, Dire Straits, I, I, some of their output, especially in the earlier in the 80s, I think it's just fantastic. Really intricate roots rock, great guitar playing. Obviously, you have Mark Knopfler on guitar and vocals there, kind of leading the way. This record, though, is a much more polished, say, commercially friendly version of their sound. Probably not their best, but definitely a good place to start for, for new listeners of the group. Uh, it's a pretty easy flow to the record, I would say. At the time, this was, you know, the cat's knees, the bee's pajamas, you know what I mean? Like, it was it was that video. It was that freaking video, man, for that song with the computer oh, yeah, graphics. Yeah. That, Very iconic uh, music video there on MTV, right? Yeah, play the guitar on the MTV. So, I mean, the A side here is just pop-orientated, very catchy, you know, well-crafted songs, but mm-hmm. definitely made for a wide audience. Um, but once you get into the B-side, things slow down a little bit, get a little more subdued, and uh, have a little more room to breathe. Let me play a, one of those cuts now. This is a little bit of The Man's Too Strong. The Man's Too Strong. Yeah, so that's kind of a, an intense but like folky track. Supposedly explores themes of human strength, vulnerability, and power, and... With power comes great loneliness. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Is that what Spider-Man said? I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, he's probably pretty lonely. I really do like side two of, of the album. Um, I mean, there's a few tracks in a row that, that deal with war and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. It just feels uh, actually kind of Floydy, Pink oh Floydy, if you will. Oh, <laughs> so God. my three words really? were um, Floyd could have. Right. So if Floyd, you know, kept it together and, you know, I, f- I feel like this album could have been a, like a, a Pink Floyd album. You mm. know, you've got, um, yeah. particularly on, on the, the B side, you know, it, there's, there's some room to breathe there that Knopfler's guitar at times sounds kind of Gilmore-ish. I don't know. I just want to hear Floyd in, in everything, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, mean, I see what you're saying, man. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it, but there are some similarities. And so, you know, I mean, these guys, I mean, they're certainly not um, forgotten, right? Because they're they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they're they're generally not in people's like first sentence when it comes to you know greatest rock bands of of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's partially I think the kind of confusion as to what their um, identity mm-hmm. is as a band. It was their kind of uncoolness. They were kind of forgettable in some ways, even though the music is is yeah. really good when you dig into the records. They weren't really like marketing a persona like so many of the groups at this time really had like a brand, you know. Because uh, I, I after this album, as far as like I don't know, I'm sure there were records after. I have no knowledge of. I think that. there's one more. Yeah, I think they were active into the '90s. I want to say. So I mean, they come from a like a place of of rootsy rock, but they're you know at least on this album they're not you know afraid to embrace more progressive elements, and you know there's some nice little synths mixed in there, which I, you know I think it it all works uh, quite well. Of course, they also threw in some '80s saxophone. Yep. Gotta have that. Got to. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you know I guess was kind of innovative was. Like, it seems like the CD version is meant to be kind of like the definitive version. So the track list is the same on the, on the vinyl, but the songs are, are longer. So like Money for Nothing is like two minutes longer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this might be that first example of, of the, you know, CD being the main medium, uh, if, if you will. The medium of choice. Yeah. Some yeah. of these songs really do stretch out, you know, six, seven, eight minutes, even a couple of them. 
Let me play one of those long songs right now. This is the album closer, Brother in Arms. Yes, I hear it, Don. I know you're like dying to be like, that's so floydy. <laughs> it kind of is. I mean, it is. It is. <laughs> I can see it in his face. He's like, ooh. <laughs> so that is the closing track. And by the way, if I had heard this whole album at the time, I knew the songs so far away and Walk of Life and stuff. Um, if I had heard this, I would have hated it. <laughs> at the time but now it's like the strongest part you know song for me on the album it was written during the falklands war which influenced its themes i was unfamiliar with this 1982 it was between argentina and united kingdom over some territories i had no idea that that happened apparently they missed that in history class <laughs> Yeah, I don't know anything about They're that They're too either. busy teaching us about how great we are instead of what's going on in other parts of the world. So yeah, that just that was fun to learn about in the course of this. Uh, in 2007, Mark Knopfler recorded a new version of the song at Abbey Road Studios to raise uh, funds for British veterans who suffered from that war. Uh, become a popular choice at military funerals, that makes sense. And it was reported to be one of the first CD singles ever released, which I hmm. thought was... Interesting, but uh, yeah, cool song. Like, really thoughtful lyrics, delivery. I, I love Mark Knopfler's voice on this because it's kind of busted a little bit, which I think is nice. Appropriate. So, uh, describing this album in three words, I'm going with swampy Brit rock because it does sound sort of southern ish mm -hmm. to me. It's very weird. Like when I found out they were British, it just didn't compute. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah. that's good. I mean, that's the power of music, where you know you can take influences from all over and become whatever kind of musician you want. Yeah. So overall, lyrics of the album explore love, war, human experience. Sort of the, you know, that iconic video brought dad rock to MTV in yeah. some ways. Uh, my parents freaking loved it at the time, which made me dislike it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's that nice blend of rock and blues and folk and. I've heard this before, that this album is known for its exceptional sound quality and is used as a reference for audio systems. Wow. Really? I've been, yeah, I've been to stereo stores where they actually take out like this gold copy of it and play it to show the fidelity. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's a very clean sounding record, I would say. Yeah. I mean, very much in line with the 80s production style. Do you guys like that sound in general? Um, I think it works for this yeah. album. The earlier work was a little more raw, but for the era, for 1986, I think it's perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that was when we started having the technical ability to have super clean, crisp, perfect production yeah. like yeah. this. And, and people were playing with it at the time instead of it being the standard. I love to blast money for nothing on like a car stereo. Yeah. Uh, I, I can picture that. <laughs> And I can picture the reaction from any <laughs> youths in the area. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> um, if you haven't heard Brothers in Arms, it is a it's a very interesting record. It's more diverse than than just the the singles you may have heard. Uh, worth checking out. So, Dire Straits. Brothers in Arms. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. 
If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Teach them so, uh, my pick for the top 10 album from 1986 is actually the number one album from 1986, uh, Whitney Houston's self-titled debut, uh, which was actually released in, in February of 1985. Uh, and this is actually the first album by a female artist to be number one on the Billboard year-end charts. Oh, wow. Cool. Whitney breaking that glass ceiling. Yeah. Go, girl. Don't ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're going to do it, add a little more attitude to it, would you? Attitude. Right. Well, uh, Whitney Elizabeth Houston was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1963. Let's hear one of the big singles from the album. This is How Will I Know. That song was originally written and composed by George Merrill and Shannon Rubicum. It was originally intended for Janet Jackson, um, but she oh, yeah, but she passed on it. Uh, you know, Clive Davis or whoever was you know <laughs> pulling the strings got Houston to record it uh, with slightly different lyrics from uh, Narada Michael Walden. Um, the lyrics are are pretty transparent uh, about a boy she likes, uh, whether he likes her back. Um, actually, Whitney's mother, uh, Sissy Houston, provides backing vocals on that. Uh, and so this, cool. well, go ahead. she she was an she was a established vocalist herself, yeah, like in the right? gospel realm. Yeah. Uh, and so this was, you know, I guess they had identified a lot of solid R&B tracks for the album, uh, but this one was meant to be that that pop cr- crossover hit, uh, which it inevitably was. Um, the three words I, I chose to describe the Whitney Houston album is Diana meets Aretha. Right, so I, I, uh, I feel like. Uh, Whitney Houston kind of blends that sort of sweet pop voice uh, of Diana Ross, but it has that that power and that versatility um, of of Aretha Franklin. Um, and yet, I mean, she's still herself as well. You know, she has her her own style. But I definitely hear both of those those people in her voice. Well, also the um, al- the allure of Diana Ross. You know, um, the look of of being uh, ingenue. Um, I had a huge crush on Whitney Houston, so I've got to be careful here. Yeah, just, you know what I'm saying. Just, there was something more sort of... Uh, a certain je ne sais quoi. Exactly. <laughs> I don't really know what that means, but it sounds good. Ingenue. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've been watching a lot of Bravo lately. Yeah, I mean, her voice is innocent and uh but charismatic uh, at the at the same time yeah i mean this this album's all about her voice uh, it's all the songs are just like pure like pop candy you know i mean they're inoffensive i mean they definitely showcase her voice so it, it accomplishes w- what it's supposed to be you know it's certainly presented in a in a safe way uh, similar to you know like another great voice out there is uh is celine dion um but i just feel i it's unfortunate sometimes that i think these great voices are are used in such a safe manner like i mm, i yeah. always wish that maybe they had the opportunity to um you know do something a little more you know provocative anyway let's uh let's hear another one here's saving all my love 
for you. Ah, the quiet storm appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as an adolescent, that song was quite uh, provocative. I don't know. Interesting to me. <laughs> Inspirational. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it just, like I had a crush on Whitney Houston and she had a way of feeling like a real person, the way that her vocal delivery. So it felt like that's why I hoped some girl would, mm-hmm. the making love the whole night through would have scared the shit out of me at that age. But I, I was, I, I, I was intrigued by the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this song was initially written and recorded in the 1970s and featuring vocals by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. I, I was unfamiliar with that. I know Marilyn McCoo. Um, her, uh, Whitney's version was released August of 85, second single from the album, and it was her first number one single. Won a Grammy Award as well. I mean, what I didn't know until researching for the show is that the song, the theme is infidelity, that she's having an affair with a married man which I did not pick up on. I just heard the making love the whole night through when I was a kid. (laughs) Um, So I I guess it caused some uh, controversy and her mom, Sissy, was a little concerned about that message reflecting poorly on her. But apparently Whitney says that it was uh, her performance was inspired by a personal experience where she had a love affair with a married man. So Hmm. at least that's what I found out on the web. The three words I'll use to describe this album are voice of an angel. So this was close for me on our voice of an angel episode mm. a while back. It was the uh, the songs that kept me from picking it uh, for that. And they're not great. You know, for the most part, the lyrics are saccharine. The arrangements are okay. But it doesn't matter. That's That's the point of Whitney Houston. She could sing a phone book. And it'd be a hit, you know. <laughs> so her performances made these songs great. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't the songs themselves. Whitney has the vocal chops to destroy anything and make it sound awesome. So I do enjoy the album very much. Well, there's two songs on it featuring Jermaine Jackson that both stink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could not agree more with that. So the, the, the duets on here are so cringy. Oh. I, uh, the Pendergrass one is, Even that is one. pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I think it's a good song, and it is so quiet storm, and I think that's kind of what they were probably shooting for at the time, mm-hmm. you know, get a couple songs in that format. So, All right, well, let's hear another one. Um, this is maybe the most uh, known or memorable uh, track from the album, The Greatest Love of All. Now, I don't know if you guys know, but this is a very awkward song to slow dance to at a school dance. Uh, it has the right sound, but then you start listening to the lyrics. It's like, what, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing here? Self-love. Yeah, this is one of those songs where like, I didn't really know what it was about until I just read the lyrics you know, a few days ago. That's pretty cool. So this was the seventh single off the album, which is a pretty great accomplishment. Ten-track album, seven singles. Good on you, Whitney. Written by Michael Masner and Linda Creed. And Gordon Lightfoot. Sorry. 
Oh, sorry. Was he credited on this? Well, he sued over it. You know the song, If You Could Read My Mind? It goes, I never thought I could act this way, and I've got to say that I just Ah, don't get it. Yeah. So he ended up suing, I think, in the the 80s or or 90s, um, but he ended up like settling out of court, and he felt bad because Whitney Houston was kind of getting some of the the flack for it, and really it was, you know, Masser who was at fault, and I I guess he inevitably uh, apologized. It's a light foot. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway. Interesting backstory. But yeah, well, the song, the message itself is really more about just loving yourself. And that, that is the greatest love. I always thought it was about a relationship that she was you know, falling in love, but pretty interesting message. My three words to describe this album are Houston, we are clear for takeoff. This is just like <laughs> such a great introduction to the world for, for Whitney. And it just really set her up for, you know, success over the rest of the decade. Um, she is such a, National treasure, just like the highest level of diva I can think of. Like everything about her is just so exquisite and you can really hear it on this record. Like her diction and pronunciation of these words is like, unlike anyone else I can think of, like everything is so crystal clean and sharp and just like, I mean, it's very mid eighties, the production and her voice just sound immaculate. And that's not my favorite style, but I do think it's cool in, in its own way, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't get past the duets, but I think as as both of you guys have said, her voice really just when it's given the space in in the mix, it it's just so impressive, and it's uh, you know, it's a reason she's uh, the diva of the eighties here, man. Okay, so that was the number one album of nineteen eighty six. Okay, we get it. You got the number Whitney one, Whitney Houston's <laughs> self titled album, Whitney Houston. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right. Time for the number one segment on our show when we ask ourselves <laughs> a question. So uh, this week's question, what do you remember most from the year 1986? Yeah, for me, I was uh, about four or five at the time, so I don't have a lot of deep memories. So like Cookie Monster might be <laughs> your answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's not too far from the truth. Um, but I do remember a story my mom told me. She was a school teacher at the time, and she recounted the experience she had showing her class the Challenger uh, launch, which was that year, and the mm-hmm. you know subsequent explosion and, and all the drama that, that surrounded that. Um, so I remember her telling me that story very vividly um, a couple of years later. So I guess that's probably what I th- think of most from this this time period. Yeah. I think of that too, because I was in a classroom, we were watching it because Christy McAuliffe was going to teach a lesson from space. So they had the TV on in my classroom, they wheeled it in back when they had to do that on a giant cart. And uh, my teacher had left the classroom for a few minutes while we were waiting because it was just the launch, you know, he'd seen a, a bunch of shuttle launches. So when the explosion happened, we were all like, what just happened? My teacher comes back in and we told her that it exploded and she just was like, no, that couldn't, you know, so then it was just a very... Very jarring day. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. When that happened. Unfortunately, so many kids had to, to see it. <laughs> like it scarred a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, because there was going to be a lesson from space and there's this whole thing. Yeah. yeah it, there, <laughs> that, that is a good point, Andy. I hadn't thought about how children across the nation were forced <laughs> yeah. to watch this horrible <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's the movies and the TV shows and, and the music and just being a preteen that I just, there's too many stories to recall, you know, to talk about here. But that time was at the beginning of the end of my innocence. Huh. And that's what I, <laughs> wow. 
Well, I remember a lot of things from from sports. It was the '85 season, but the you know the Bears, the Chicago Bears, won the Super Bowl in 1986. Yep, they famously awesome. recorded the Super Bowl Shuffle. You know, of which, course, that's a great tune. Which put hip hop on the map, of course. <laughs> um, you know, well, there's another. There's another '86 sports team that did a, a rap song, the New York Mets. Oh yeah, that's right. Theirs was even yeah. worse. Yeah, that was a thing for a while where teams yeah. would record songs. You know, I also remember I was allowed to get WrestleMania two on pay per view. That was, a, that was a big deal. Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy. Yeah, that was the the headline. Yeah. Oh yeah. So still in the in the combat sports, uh, Mike Tyson. You know, so that was the year he he finally won the title. Oh uh, yeah. And you know, I was just you know I was captivated he by was him. Stunning. Yeah. I mean, he took everybody down. As kids that grew up with Muhammad Ali being the ultimate in boxing, and he had so much style and. You know, yeah. very verbal, and this guy was the exact opposite. He was short, yep. comparatively. He was broad, like you just see that broad back, and he's just a, a punching machine yeah. instead of a human being. And it was, <laughs> it was, it, it was really f interesting to see that rise and watch it. But he was also scary, yep. uh, and Ali wasn't scary. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, well, what do you remember from 1986? Hit us up on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Also, the Discord, albumnerds.com slash Discord. Oh, no, it's those nasty boys. <laughs> <laughs> and in 86, the Golden Girls were at their height. All right, so uh, as we alluded to, I'm going to be talking about Janet Demita Joe Jackson today and her album Control. Uh, Janet was born May 16th, 1966 in Gary, Indiana, famously from the Jackson family. She had a brother of some note. <laughs> and um, <laughs> she began her career in entertainment as an actress, appearing in Good Times and Fame and Different Strokes. Uh, and then in 82, she, she signed with A&M Records and, and made two albums that were her father was her manager and was heavily involved in, her family was heavily involved in. So Control was her third studio album and released February 4th, 1986. This was her first time collaborating with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and uh, they went on to make some other great records together. Why don't we jump right in with Nasty. No, my first name ain't Baby. It's Janet. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. Nasty. Nasty boys. That is one of the best lines in all of pop music, in my opinion. <laughs> really? I mean, it's it just it it says so much in just a few words. Like, show me some respect, you know. If you're calling her Miss Jackson, wouldn't that be showing her respect? Wouldn't they not be nasty? No, if you are nasty, you don't get to call me Janet. You have to call me Miss Jackson. Okay, you have to show her more respect because you are nasty. Correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this song and what have you done for me lately are the two that I think were are fueled by what was going on in her life at the time. So the album Control and then the song Control is uh, her breaking free of her family, her breaking free of her marriage to James DeBarge. She was only 20 years old at this time. Wow. But she had been living with her parents and her parents and family were heavily involved in all her decisions. And those first two records were very vanilla and not interesting. And she wasn't writing any of the songs and had no input. And she collaborated uh, with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, when they when they met up, they had no songs prepared. They worked together on these songs, and she got to actually tell her story, how she was taking control of her life, and then the bad experiences of men 
controlling her, men coming on to her, pushing their will on to her. And that's where nasty is about those guys. And what have you done for me lately is about, you know, you, you get in a relationship, someone's all nice and doing, taking you out, going dancing, and then they stop and they still expect you to, to treat them the same. And it's like, hey, show me some respect. So I think that was a lot of what was behind this. Yeah. And a lot of what differentiates her from her brother, Michael and Jermaine, who we've mentioned today, <laughs> um, she actually put herself into these songs and her own story. And, and that's what I think is really awesome about this record. Now, I did not prepare three words. I in, instead composed a haiku. Oh my gosh. Control, a gem, Janet's power, shining bright, self-discovery. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I was counting syllables. <laughs> <laughs> Setting a high bar there, man. We were doing haiku stuff. <laughs> All right, so uh, why don't we get into a little bit more of the record. This is When I Think of You. It's the third single off of Control. I just love that song because it's so happy. It's got such a great catchiness to it. Every time I hear it, it kind of puts a smile on my face. Well, it has that signature giggle that she <laughs> does there. Yeah. And then, you know, she does that on some subsequent records as well, like on Janet. Yeah, so. it's a very Jackson kind of sound. The words I used to describe this album are filling out the shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah. She really does. I was impressed with how pro-female this record is. Uh, she really does tell like she's taking back control in her life, but she's also kind of putting out this message there of, you know, don't mess with me, sort of vibe i get here and i'm doing things my way which i I think is great man the first half of the record really delivers Uh, there's a lot of dance a lot of dance orientated tracks i wasn't expecting that to be that i guess upbeat or that up tempo um Almost the entire record is that way, really. Yeah, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were developing that new Jack Swing sound really at this point. And this is one of the first entries where you can hear some of that. And then there's also some of your typical 80s pop Mm -hmm. music stuff still mixed in there, which is only what she had done on the first two albums. This took risks lyrically as well as musically, which I think is part of why it's so exciting. Yeah, it definitely feels a little bit more edgy than like the Whitney Houston record, I would say. Oh, yeah. Oh, she, she's a, a very pretty singing voice, but she's not... Nah, not in the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, like, when we talked about that song that Janet passed on, that vibe didn't fit what she was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think her, her vocals are, like, super fun and kind of sexy in a, in a way. It, she sounds also a little bit, I don't want to say, like, immature, but she sounds young, I guess, the things that she's talking about and the things that she's discovering. Yeah. She was actually, she was like, 20 at the time to record this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not, she sounds like it, but it's still it's still exciting. And it sounds like she's you know learning things and discovering who she is, and that's a great time in life. And I, I you know I think she's really underrated. I mean, I've I always thought of her as being second fiddle to Michael, but I think in some ways she's got more personality than Michael, especially yeah. on this record. Yeah, I think she's just she's just saying more. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. You get a better sense of like who she is, and not just yep. the time. This, this album has given us great pleasure. Why don't we explore that pleasure principle? Jeez. You know, right or wrong, at my school at the time, I had a principle of pleasure. 
<laughs> that was the joke yeah. me and my friends were making then. <laughs> we would make fun of the uh, of the principal being the <laughs> pleasure <laughs> principal. <laughs> All right, well, the, the pleasure principal was uh, written and produced by uh, Monte Moore, uh, who was actually keyboardist from the time. Um, also, uh, you know, co-produced by by Janet um, and uh, Steve Weiss. And you know, the the song is it's like an independent woman anthem uh, about taking control of a personal relationship. Uh, you know, you're refusing to to settle for loveless materialism. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm just gonna end up saying what what you guys said already. You know, I mean, this whole album is is uh, you know kind of about uh, female empowerment. The the three words I, I chose to describe the album are strength through pop. Um, so yes, these are pop songs that are that are easy to digest, but there's more behind them, right? Um, you know, you have a, a strong woman, you know, demanding things. Yeah, in fact, going back to you, the idea that she wasn't interested in, in how will I know, um, you know, it's like, I mean, she doesn't care if the, you know, if the guy likes her back or not, because he's going to show it or she's going to move on, you know? Right. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this album really, you know, positions her as a, as a force in dance pop. You know, I, I think so much of, uh, the, the music in this genre, um, you know, from 1985 on, you know, kind of, you know, borrows from this. So I, I think she, you know, very much set the the tone for R&B music of the the late 80s and kind of, you know, pushes us into that new Jack Swing era. Uh, and as you guys said, I mean, her voice isn't a strength, but I mean, the songs are, are so good. I mean, the rhythms are are, are good and, and the production is, is so strong that, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. And her voice still has like charisma and, and character, which works. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the little spoken parts throughout the record, the bit of French on the last track, uh, maybe some of her acting talents being put to use. But Control is a great 80s album, as we've all kind of been saying. I mean, it's not perfect. Nothing is. Uh, seven singles from this thing. What have you done for me lately? Nasty. When I think of you. Control. Let's wait a while. The Pleasure Principle, and Funny How Time Flies When You're Having Fun. Five of those went to the top five. Just a great pop record. Worth a listen if you've never heard. Worth revisiting if it's been a while. So go check out Control by Janet Jackson. Miss Jackson if you're nasty. So... The top 10 of, of 1986. What did we learn? So I looked beyond the top 10 as well. And I think uh, what I discovered is in 86, it was easier. You know, top 50 would have had albums that maybe I was more into or would have, you know, I would have liked to talk about Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, that kind of thing. But the top 10 was still pretty diverse. I mean, no hip hop really on here, but Control had some of those emerging hip-hop elements mm -hmm. that were coming into R&B. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a pretty good mix of, of types of artists. Yeah, yeah, like pop rock, Midwestern rock, different types of dance music, even like adult contemporary. It's cool. I think what I learned was this was a high point of sort of a melting pot of popular music because MTV was feeding you everything, right? The, regardless of, of subgenre. And so we all kind of had this similar taste, you know, and I, I think that that shows in the top 10. Yeah. And on a radio station, you could go from John Mellencamp to Janet Jackson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to Poison. Yeah. 
you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I tend to roll my eyes at the charts because they're, you know, they're often not the best albums of, of that year. And I don't think these are. Maybe a couple of them would, would show up on, on a list. But I mean, it, you know, it's a picture of the, the 1986 pop music landscape. A schmattering, if you will. A, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, for all the 80s production stuff that I, I cannot get past. <laughs> And definitely is here in spades. Like we are seeped deep in the cleanliness of the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> there's still a lot of really good music here. And these records, looking back on like this top 10, like there's a, pretty much all of these are like classic albums nowadays, at least looked back on this as being very influential and, and important. So, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit more fond of 1986 than I was when we started. And that's one to grow on. on. Density. I mean, your destiny. All right, boys and girls, gather around. It's time once again to spin that wheel of musical destiny and see what we're going to be talking about on next week's show. It is time to make devil horns with your hands again. Your musical destiny is to explore metal albums with some serious guitar shredding. A perfect soundtrack for a spooky autumn. So we're going to be talking about some uh, kick-ass guitar from uh, heavy metal guitar virtuosos. That should be fun. A little bit different than what we just experienced. <laughs> yes, a little less drum machine, a little more guitar. Sounds good. Just a quick reminder that we check our website, albumnerds.com, for any ongoing Album Nerds Hall of Fame votes and submit your ideas for the Wheel of Musical Destiny. Yeah, well, who's your favorite heavy metal shredder? What was your favorite album from 1986? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. And please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you for <laughs> joining us on the Album Nerds podcast. We'll catch you next time with some shredding. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Because the greatest podcast of all is happening right now. <laughs> because actually, it's over. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. That's perfect.